1: Belt lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's one 450 6624 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Apologies for last week. We had a, a, a small client emergency come up uh, in the form of cryptoware. And so had to deal with that. Um, one of the things I will tell you, just a lesson learned taking away two things first off anytime you can use snapshotting be it on a linux-based file system um with with something like libvertd or with zfs take that option Uh, your clients will thank you for it your business will thank you for it your data will thank you for it being able to just roll back to the last 15 minutes at any point in time is absolutely fantastic the second takeaway is if you have to rebuild a machine Rebuilding from either a snapshot or even if you have to be rebuild this machine from scratch, but you're doing it as a VM and uh, and and are able to take advantage of some of the shortcuts that VMs provide, it makes managing Windows machines a lot more tolerable. Again, the phones are open this hour, 855-450-NOAA, it's 855-450-6624, the email live at com. Bryce is with us from uh, South Carolina. Hey, Bryce, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
0: Hey Noah, hey thanks for taking my call. I have a quick question tonight. Um I run a pfSense firewall at my home and um inside of my LAN I have a virtual machine running WireGuard and um when I'm outside of the house, you know, I port forward to my WireGuard server and I have WireGuard running on my phone, works perfectly fine when I'm outside of the house. But if I come back onto my LAN with WireGuard enabled on my phone, my phone loses all connectivity. Um no no notifications, no no network, no network connectivity at all. Um, I initially thought the issue was DNS issue. Um, I have a static IP from my ISP and then a, uh, uh, a URL that resolves to it, and that's what I have in my guard config. So I thought that it was a DNS issue when I was inside my land, I couldn't resolve it. So I went into pfSense and added that to my DNS resolver, and that did not fix the issue. I'm just kind of looking for some guidance on how to. Fix that problem.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the issue you're running into is something called hairpin NAT, and essentially the way that hairpin NAT works, or in in your case, is not working, um, is uh, when you when your phone is outside of your house, and I'm just going to make up your IP address. We're going to say your IP address is one dot one dot one dot one, public IP address of your house. And um, when you enter that public IP address from outside of the house, it knows exactly how to find it, and and Sense knows exactly what to do with that information because it's told to expect traffic on the WAN interface and when it sees traffic coming in on the WAN interface uh, for this particular port, I'm going to forward all that traffic to this particular internal IP address. That works all fine and well. When you're inside the house, though, and you start sending traffic. You are now on the other side of your PFSense router. You're not sitting on the WAN side. You're actually sitting on the LAN side. And the LAN interface looks at that traffic and says, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with that. It's 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 routed for this IP address. This IP address is the IP address of my other interface. I don't know what to do. Um, there's a couple different ways you can solve that. The correct way to do it um, is to set up. Uh, routing rules inside of your router for hairpin NAT and, and PFSense has some great guides that can walk you through that a cheat way to get around it. And we've done this numerous times for clients. It seems to work. Okay. Um, is if, if, so. And, and it sounds like you may have even started down this path, but let's say your, let's say your, 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 um your host name that statically resolves outside is, uh, is, is Kyle. Ask or excuse me, is Bryce. Ask dot And, what you can do outside that's going to resolve to your public IP address internally what you can do is you can create a DNS uh, entry much like you've done and if you create the DNS entry for bryce.asnoashow.com but this time you point it to the internal IP address uh, that should work the only time i've seen that break is if you have devices that cache the IP address or cache the, you know cache the IP address from from DNS and and it's it's people that that go in and out very frequently, and if that's the case, um, then I would recommend uh, the, uh, setting up a proper hairpin net.
0: Okay, yeah, that, that answers my question um, perfectly. Yeah, I did try to DNS trick, and I had it resolving to my one ninety two address, but um, I didn't reboot the phone or something, so it may have been a, it didn't it didn't work when I tried it, so that may have been a cash situation. Mm, but, mm-hmm. um, I'll look up the net hairpinning and try to try to do it the proper way.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. I will have a. I'll. I'll have a link. Um. I'll have a link. I'll see, see if I can dig it up and, and have a link there for you the, for in the show notes of podcast. Com to uh, from the for the Netgate documentation for that. Sounds good. Hey, thanks, Noah. Hey, I appreciate the call. One eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, You can also join us. There are a couple different ways you can join us uh, this evening. You can uh, join us in our Jitsi room. We have a Matrix instance at LinuxDelta.com. You can sign up for a free account there. And one of the advantages of using the Matrix infrastructure is they have a number of plugins supported. One of the plugins that we have on our Matrix server is Jitsi. And so you can join the show, ask a question, voice your opinion, uh, all from the convenience of your computer. And we invite you to do that. Again, LinuxDelta.com, excuse me, Matrix.LinuxDelta.com. Thanks for the correction. Um, Our gadget of the week is the Dahua N22AL12. Now... We have talked about IP security cameras um, ad nauseum on this program, and people have written into the program and and, and reached out to me on, on Telegram and Matrix and said, hey, you know, I like the fact that you recommend access cameras. If I had an unlimited amount of money and wanted to buy the best IP cameras out there, I'd probably go purchase some access cameras as well. However, for one reason or another, I have to do a insert number of camera installation and we have a budget of insert dollars. So that's not going to work. Do you have any less expensive alternatives? Um, the go to less expensive alternative, if you go on Reddit or any of the forums, is hike vision, H-I-K vision. I have uh, said numerous times, and I'll say again, that I don't like hike vision cameras, not because they're not quality devices. They absolutely do produce a very high quality image. But you have to understand that hike vision is not just a Chinese company. They're literally owned by the Chinese government. And so when the Chinese government is looking for surveillance technology to advance their agenda, obviously they're they're likely using Hikvision cameras. Now, if that makes you nervous and you don't want to use them, um, then it makes you nervous and you don't want to use them. If you don't seem to care, then you don't seem to care. What you should understand is that there are open source projects out there, uh, some of which have the ability to root a uh, certain models of Hike Vision cameras because the 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 firmware is not terribly secure, uh, so we don't install Hike Vision. Uh, we don't recommend it to our clients if they have them. We recommend that they, they cycle them out. Um, but there are some other alternatives now. None of these come with uh, with a with a with any sort of guarantee of privacy or security. Um, but in our in in our research and in our testing they don't appear to call home or or do anything fishy they just create rtp packets and send them back to the n v r which is kind of what you want so the dahua n twenty two a l twelve is a sixty dollar camera it's a mini dome camera um it it does have a one uh, a half inch progressive scan CMOS sensor dual stream stream encoding this I really like this comes with the new h265 algorithm that offers a little bit better quality than the previous h264 but it supports dual streaming so if you have a, an NVR if you have a source that requires that h264 codec you can use that as well as take advantage of H- h265 as you get more and more devices on your network that support the h265 standard um, it's two makes a Two megapixel camera, which means it's uh, 1920 by 1080, is the native resolution, 30 frames per second. It comes with a 2.8 millimeter fixed lens, so it's going to give you a nice wide view of uh, of what's out there. Uh, and um, the, it has a built-in IR LED uh, that can illuminate about 100 feet in front of it. It's also part of their Arctic Pro Series camera, which living in North Dakota, I can appreciate because it's operational down to 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, it's also IP67 rated so you don't have to worry so much about vandal they do include um some security screws and you have to use a special bit and they include the wrench to do that uh, to try and eliminate vandalism and 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 people trying to uh, to damage it and of course it includes PoE support now I will tell you having installed a few of these the one of the things I'm not a big fan of is the is is the is the fact that the cord that comes out of this is kind of like a little pigtail and it kind of sticks out of the camera. And on the end of the, the pigtail, it has a barrel connector for power as well as the Ethernet cord for plugging in the for plugging in your your network cable. Of course, if you provided a network cable with PoE, then it's, the camera is just going to take the power from the PoE jack off the switch. The, the reason that I don't like the pigtail, first of all, anytime you're mounting a camera, if you're mounting it on an outdoor box or outdoor enclosure, then you have some room to put the rest of the cable back in. But oftentimes uh, you'll wind up mounting cameras either to the surface of an out, uh, exterior wall an interior wall, or sometimes you have to cram a camera into a very small space. And in those small spaces, oftentimes there's not a lot of extra room for cabling. And if you want to make room for cabling, what you end up doing is having to cut out portions of the wall, which make it very difficult for the owner of the business to move that camera. Instead of patching a little half-inch hole or a one-inch hole, now they have to patch this big uh, this big thing where you have this big coil of cable uh, locked up in there. And with the pigtail um, if you don't make a, a large enough hole to, to shove all that cable back in there, then what ends up happening is you try to pull the camera down for servicing or to replace it, and the the it separates uh, where that jack is, and you the, the Ethernet cable gets lost in the wall. It just kind of creates a mess. So I I really prefer to have the RJ45 connector right on the um right on the the camera itself. Um, but other than that. Uh, it's a very good camera. Uh, it doesn't have quite the adjustability that the access cameras have. They have a two two two-axis gimbal. And so you essentially you loosen the screws and you can take that camera and move it any which way you want. Um, you know, right, left, up, down this camera. Essentially it has a 90 degree swing that you can go up or down. And then if you want the other 90 degrees, you want it to go the other way. What they recommend you do is just mount it backwards and then in uh, in the camera configuration software you flip the image 180 degrees so you can get there the same way it's just really nice when you're up on a ladder when you're taking those screws out just to be able to point the camera the way that you you want to point it but for $60 as compared to the M 2025 which is the camera that we've recommended from Axis uh, that's about a $350 camera and so you're it's a significant price drop uh, to go with the Dahua now Dahua is a I believe it's a Taiwanese company and um, they, are, uh, they are, are, are a part of Samsung. And so they sell things under the Samsung brand. In fact, a couple of their Dahua cameras are sold under the Samsung brand. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at so podcast.sknowashow.com. So if you're looking for a less expensive IP camera, the Dahua, uh, get the model number here again, the Dahua N22AL12 uh, would be the way to go. Mozilla's in the news this week, as they are downsizing. Obviously, uh, all of us are aware that the world is constantly changing. And with that change, Mozilla is reacting. Now, a couple of market uh, forces that you have to be aware of. The first is that recently, just a, a few months ago, Microsoft made the decision to move the development of Microsoft Edge over to the Chrome based engine. And so obviously this means that the largest browser in the world now is going to be the the Chrome Frameworks, which of course a number of browsers to include Google Chrome and now Microsoft Edge are on. Mozilla is taking the opposite approach. They instead of trying to become bigger and instead of trying to get more users, they are focusing on being more nimble and aligning better with what their customers want and how they can serve those customers. I think a lot of people, to include myself, exclusively use Firefox because we trust the organization Mozilla to promote a freer and private Internet. And uh, this comes in all sorts of all sorts of various different features and ideas that we've seen them roll out through the years. Uh, More secure DNS uh, resolution right within the browser without having to make any configurations or changes. They give you a nice little notification. Additionally, um, they notify you when tracking cookies, um, little one pixel imagery directs that are used to try to invade your privacy. They're going to let you know about that. They've also done a lot of work with sandboxing and containers, allowing faces or, excuse me, sites like Facebook to run inside of its own little Facebook container and so that it can't reach out and, and track you around the rest of the internet. This is the kind of thing that we want from Mozilla Firefox. And and I think in order to deliver this properly, in order to deliver to their customer base, they have to find a way to augment two things. First off, they have to find a way to respond more quickly to user feedback, which it sounds like this announcement is going to allow them to do. But the other thing it's going to allow them to do is explore different methods of funding. And they specifically talk about this in their announcement over at blog.mozilla.org. They are looking for different ways to monetize the web browser. And it's not because they're bad, evil, greedy people and want money. It's just that there is this development costs money and there has to be a way to pay for it. And most browsers, most organizations are comfortable exchanging user data for the cost of the development. Indeed, most users don't seem to complain too much when their user when their user data or when their privacy is used or exchanged uh, in in exchange they get a free browser that works a little better. Most people take that uh t- are willing to ri- write that that privacy check as it were and so as mozilla makes this announcement obviously a lot of people a lot of tech podcasters and a lot of news outlets are covering it as essentially that mozilla is laying off half their staff i think there's a more positive announcement in here i think if you read kind of between the lines what mozilla is doing is it sad that they had to lay off half of their staff yes it is um I our our thoughts and prayers with those people and hope that they land on their feet somewhere. Yes, absolutely. But the reality here is that Mozilla is 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 fighting an uphill battle. They really are. Um, they have less than fifteen percent of the web market share. And as more and more adoption goes towards Internet ed- or Microsoft Edge and uh, Google Chrome, that market share is likely to decrease. Except for. People like you, people like me who value our privacy, value our uh, our being anonymous on the Internet and value our choice and the ability to participate in the discussion. One of the things I've given Mozilla numerous uh, times over the years praise for is their is their decision to hold open meetings. In fact, interestingly enough, even in their blog article called uh, Changing World changing mozilla they had a they had a link to the internal message that they sent to all of their employees and um it's 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 the, essentially the the memo that went out explaining what they're doing why they're making the choices that they're making and how that's beneficial ultimately to their end users and so huge thanks to Mozilla for their continued efforts in this space. I think there's a lot of organizations out there that would look and say, hey, you know what? There's just not that much space worth fighting over in the Internet anymore, so we're just going to throw in the towel. And instead, Mozilla is more or less doubling down their efforts and saying, no, we're just going to work twice as hard. We're going to do twice as good of a job. We're just going to have to do it with a smaller, smaller team. Uh, you can join us in our interactive IRC room. You can do that by joining the Ask Noah show, Pound Ask Noah show on free note uh, a couple people in there hanging out and chatting with us participating throughout the show again your participation is welcome always in the matrix room as well as the phone lines at 855 450 noah have you heard about the pocket pc called the popcorn computer well it's we've talked frequently about companion devices something in addition to the phone and the laptop uh, for a, long, for a lot of us, our laptop is just kind of glued to our side because we're IT people. We kind of have to have access to that. and We need the tools that reside on them. Now, the phone can work sometimes in a pinch. In fact, I was able to get access to a door control system and let my family in to use the bathroom just a couple of days ago. Uh, I can do those things, I can, but it takes a significant amount of effort because a desktop environment doesn't want to render real well uh, over a remote connection on a phone. And that's kind of where companion devices start to come in, that ability to just pull a device out of your pocket, SSH in, restart that service, get that server going, um, check the log on this thing, check the access control, make sure nobody's in here doing that thing. And you can do that on your phone, the keyboard makes it a little bit nicer, but having an actual mouse, an actual trackpad, an actual keyboard, um, that makes all the difference in the world. And then you come down to the question of, do you really trust data on your phone? We're going to talk about that in a later story this hour, but um, there is a lot of concern over the privacy and security of your phone. And a lot of that scrutiny is focused on iPhone and Android because those are the two most popular platforms. And so having a companion device, particularly one that's running Linux, um, kind of gives you sort of a leg up, I think. Well, the Popcorn computer is available for pre-order. They're going to ship these computers in November of 2020. Now, they've made a couple of changes. This is a handheld Linux device with a high-definition 1080p display, a large battery life. Pocket PC is your hacker terminal on the go. And the way they phrase that and the way that they describe this device goes hand in hand with what I've said I'm looking for in companion style devices. Quote, people should be able to use their devices as they want. This is the premise that we based Pocket PC on when we began development of this device. This is the device we always dreamed of owning, and that's why we made it. In today's technology landscape, there are plenty of Android and iOS devices. However, Linux-based are largely ignored and above and beyond the fact that th- what operating system this thing runs one of the things that is is increasingly alarming or is is um is really disappointing really is the fact that a lot of the apple devices can no longer be repurposed essentially once ios runs its course and you and it. that's out, then there's really not much more you can do with that device. And that's less true with Android because we do have a lot of alternative ROMs. The trade-off is while you're using Android or if you're using Android, you're walking around with a number of different security holes in your pocket. So there hasn't been a really solid solution but what I what I most object to is the idea that we purchase hardware and we don't get any say in the software that gets installed on that hardware. And so Pocket PC is trying to challenge that and they're trying to take this to the mat. This is a fully open source hardware design. They have the design up on github.com uh, github, github.com slash popcorncomputer slash pocketPC-hardware. Again, uh, we'll go through the hardware specs, 1080p display. This is cool. A dedicated debug USB series serial port. A USB-C serial port. And so what this allows you to do is load alternative ROMs and 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 go ahead and hack on the device without having to worry about bricking your device. Indeed, their description says the dedicated USB-C port for serial debugging will make sure that you never brick your device. And so this is a device designed to be played with. They're not trying to keep you out of the device. In fact, they're making it aggressively easier for you to play with it it features a 1.2 gigahertz quad core arm cortex a53 processor 2 gigabytes of ram 32 gigabytes of onboard storage a 5 inch 1080p display Uh, there's a internal micro sd card connector if you'd like to expand the storage 3200 milliamp removable battery 2.4 gigahertz wi-fi bluetooth 4.0 the device uh, connectivity features features four type c connectors one device port with power delivery, two with host port, um, one with power delivery, one without power delivery, one USB to serial converter for console output. Uh, it comes pre-installed with Debian 9 with mainline Linux kernel compatible with gadget OS and build root, uh, open source keyboard and LED controller firmware. This is, uh, this is really important. Uh, just because this stuff works on Linux does not necessarily mean Um, that's all there is to it. The fact is, there's a a huge security implication that comes with code that's running on these firmware boards. And so the fact that the LED controller and the the keyboard is all open firmware, that is a, a selling point as well. But it gets... Even better because this device is selling right now it's on sale for $199. This is a pre-order, um, but this device looks really cool. It is literally a handheld little Linux computer that you can carry in your pocket and it's designed to screw around with and play with. And I like that. I kind of wish somebody would build something like this for the Raspberry Pi, some sort of an enclosure that you could put a Raspberry Pi for in, and then just have the keyboard a five inch 1080p display. I would buy that in a heartbeat because I already have all of the workflows and various different software that runs well. Uh, on the Raspberry Pi, I don't have that with this device. But in any event, I, I do have a, I did place a pre-order for one, so we'll see when it gets here uh, what it looks like and, and how it functions. The Linux Foundation is in the news because they are launching an open-source security initiative. Quote, the Linux Foundation today announced the formation of the Open Source Security Foundation, known as OpenSSF. The OpenSSF is a cross-industry collaboration that brings together leaders to improve the security of open-source software by building a broader community with targeted initiatives and best practices. It combines efforts from the Core Infrastructure Initiative, GitHub's Open Source Security Coalition, and other open-source security work from founding governing board members of GitHub, Google, IBM, Morgan Chase, Microsoft, NCC Group, OWASP Foundation, and Red Hat, among others. Additional founding members include 11Paths, GitLab, HackerOne, Intel, Okta, Purdue, SafeCode, and StackHawk. One other thing, I want to make sure that we understand here that the core infrastructure initiative, this was back in um, uh, 2014, Heartbleed, essentially a bug that allowed you to dump various portions of the computer's memory and, and have it return that remotely over to a machine. Um, This was obviously a massive bug in OpenSSL, and one that a lot of people, to include myself at the time, said was primarily a result of not enough money being put into these open source projects. Yeah, sure, a lot of companies adopt them, but who's making sure that this code stays up to date and that these security holes are fixed? And of course, the big problem with with uh, with vulnerabilities like Heartbleed are um, when you combine that. With the efforts of various different governments and various different government agencies to collect all the information and store it for an indefinite amount of time, when a vulnerability comes out that allows them to kind of roll the clock back and say, well, now we can go back and decrypt this, this, and this, that's obviously a massive problem. And so um, what the Linux Foundation did was they formed the, uh, the core infrastructure initiative to try to Garner some attention and garner some funding uh, to keep these things up to date. Well, this is the next evolution of of that of the of the uh, the core initiative or the CII. This is the open source sec- uh, the the open SSF. And so, uh, what they're looking to do is keep a watchful eye on security. They're also interested in partnering with the people that actually make their money off of leveraging open source technology. So these these people can come together and say, okay, well. What is it that we need to be focusing on and where are some of these problems and vulnerabilities and who has the time, effort or funding to fix some of these things? Because certainly um, when, you start getting, when you start throwing around names like GitHub and Google and IBM, JP Morgan Chase and Microsoft, um, those four alone are going to have enough funding um, to make sure that, that gaping security holes don't happen. Of course, you need somebody that's kind of in there and poking them and saying, hey, could we have, you know, could we have some funding can we fix this problem or can we look into this thing? But you need a company. You need a organization that can sell things like Let's Encrypt to large organizations and convince them that's just as good as paying for a traditional CA. And that's a very real-life implementation of how you take an open-source competitor to a proprietary solution and you bring it to market and it takes off. I can't count the number of devices now. I've seen everything from... Uh, you know, uh, industry-specific devices to regular plain Jane routers that are using Let's Encrypt as their SSL certificate, so that they can uh, provide SSL security without getting nasty. Graham saying this page is not secure; those kinds of things, um, and it doesn't cost them any money. There's just a, a renewal procedure, um, th- and and though that's one, that's just one of many examples of things that have that have taken off an open source and do the job better than the proprietary, the previous alternative, but people aren't using it primarily because there's not a lot of advocacy and there's not a lot of funding um, to get, to to, to get the ball rolling. And so um, that's really what um, the Linux foundation hopes to, to achieve with this. And so obviously I think uh, all of us are, are inherently safer, more secure um, because of it. Earlier this year, a Philadelphia man was released from jail after four years of being held in contempt in connection with a um, in connection with a criminal case in which a federal appeals court judge rejected his argument that the Fifth Amendment gave him the right to refuse to unlock hard drives found in his possession. A Vermont federal court judge reached the same conclusion in 2009, as did a Colorado federal court judge in 2012. A Virginia state court in 2014 and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in also in 2014. But courts in Florida and Wisconsin have reached the opposite conclusion, holding that forcing people to provide a computer or smartphone passwords would violate their Fifth Amendment. So. As it stands right now, and obviously, as you can tell by just the opening of the article, that this depends on what state you're in, and obviously what judge you get. But the way that it, it, it the, the way that it's typically accepted inside of the United States is that you cannot be compelled to give a password or a PIN, but you can be compelled to use your fingerprint to unlock the phone. It's one of the reasons that our recommendation is: anytime you travel, if you're coming in or out of the country, in fact, really, if you're traveling in or out of any country, you should restart your phone. This will. This will force the phone to disable the fingerprint login, which is inherently less secure uh, than typing in the PIN. You should also use a PIN uh, as long as you as long as you can feasibly remember. Don't just rely on the little four digits or or six digits, whatever the phone prompts you to do. The discussion here, uh, as 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 it continues to unfold, really resolves really, I guess, revolves around the idea that the courts have long since hell that you can be required to produce documents that incriminate you. If you say if they say, we want you to produce tax documents, um, you have to give them the tax documents, even if it incriminates yourself. And saying that I have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate myself, therefore, I'm not going to produce these documents is not a viable defense and hasn't been for a very long time. Nor is I have the combination for that safe there sitting in the corner, but. I'm not going to give you the combination to that safe because it contains incriminating documents and I don't want you to find them. Um, Courts have said that that doesn't work. The difference here and and why I think this discussion is not being fairly portrayed is because in the case of a safe um, at the end of the day, if. A court rules that they get access to the safe. They can just take it to the safe manufacturer. They can take it to a locksmith and locksmith can either defeat the lock and open the safe or they can just cut the safe apart and get to the contents inside. So far as I know, there is no safe that exists that is that is impermeable given enough time, enough money and enough tools. Um, But that is not the case with encryption. With encryption, it's fairly trivial to put a piece of data or, or, or take hard drives and lock them in such a way that uh, no matter how much, comp- well, I shouldn't say no matter how much computing power, I suppose if given enough computing power and enough time, you could crack anything. But with the available computing power available today to most law enforcement agencies, um, the idea of breaking even the most basic of encryption as long as a po- proper pa- passphrase has been used and there are no known um, widely exploitable vulnerabilities for that particular encryption system, it's pretty much safe. It's the chances of them getting is probably not worth their time. Um, and law enforcement knows this. And this is something that's highlighted in most every book um, that that details somebody who has had interaction with law enforcement. The most notable, ex- uh, uh, I guess, example that comes to mind is Ross Albrecht. Um, his encryption was defeated, but it was because he used a poor passphrase. In fact, the places that he did use proper passphrases they weren't able to get to certain portions of his laptop. Um so we know this works, and we know that this is something that that law enforcement is concerned about. The way they present this argument though inside of court cases is essentially that no matter if it's encrypted or not, if you know the password you have to you have to give that password up and the 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 concern that I take or the position that I've kind of taken on this. Is basically that when you make a decision to give up a password or a passphrase, there is not really a a hard limit on the information that police have access to or that the the courts have access to You. Give an encryption key up for your hard drive, all the information, all of the photos, all of the documents, all of the emails, whether they are related to a case or not, whether they're suspected or not. All of that stuff is is given access. And because our world is so quickly moving electronic, um, you get access to more and more stuff just as time goes on. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, if somebody would have asked me to decrypt my laptop, they would have obviously gotten client files. And of course, they would have gotten some of my personal files. But the vast majority of bills and bank statements and um, and 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 personal financial records and all those kinds of things were all largely still being mailed around um, and still being signed. But these days, everything is seems to be done with a PDF or a website and it's, it's printed to a PDF. And so the, the 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 sheer amount of data that is now available on people's uh, on people's computers is is frightening. And the fact that the that the courts are fighting about this. Um, is a little bit concerning, particularly in light of the Congress's and um, and uh, other efforts to try to create legislation to curtail and control and downplay the role of encryption. So we'll continue to keep an eye on those things. But the the article, and we'll have it linked for you in the show notes. Um, it's it's interesting to read. How various courts interpret the same information differently. But my advice to you, and I'm not a lawyer, I don't play one on TV, my advice to you is if you're asked to decrypt a piece of information, I would politely decline. Um, If you don't recall that information, you can't be compelled to, to decrypt it, and I would get a lawyer involved and go from there. LibreOffice 7 is released. Um I was doing some reading on the on the Open Document Foundation and uh, the amount of money that they take in and what they're able to accomplish in a year is nothing short of fantastic. Uh, the LibreOffice project announces the availability of LibreOffice 7. It's a new major release providing significant new features. They now support the open document format 1.3, Skia graphics engine and Vulkan GPU-based acceleration for better performance. This is now the default on the Windows operating system. Improve compatibility with DocX, XLSX, and PPTX if you're interfacing with Microsoft Windows or Microsoft Office. Um, this is going to be an important one to you. Uh, additionally, DocX now saves native in 2013, 2016, 2019. You may recall that previously it was saving in 2017 in 2007 compatibility so dot uh, doc instead of the um, xml format now it's going to say by default in 2013 2016 2019 same thing um, to improve interoperability with multiple versions of microsoft office based on the same microsoft approach uh, of course you can export to xlsx files with sheet names longer than 31 characters uh, that previously was impossible uh, along with exporting checkboxes in xlsx instead of the invalid content error that, uh, that was previously being displayed. A um, couple of general updates. They have a new icon theme. The new default on Mac OS is Souk Apura. Uh, there's new shapes in the gallery, as well as arrows, diagrams, icons, and glow and soft edges effect for objects. Of course, they have individual upgrades for writer, calc, compress, press and draw. We're not going to go through all those, but you can read more about them in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, our next guest, James Kalina. He is the director of the Open Power Foundation, and uh, he joins us on the Ask Noah Show. James, welcome into the program.
2: Hi. Pleasure hey. to be here.
1: Thanks for taking the time, James. Um, So let's start with this. The Open uh, Open Power Foundation is being moved under the Linux Foundation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that means, how that happened, and how that might affect things?
2: Uh, Sure. So, yeah, so uh, last year uh, at the Open Power uh, Summit, uh, the announcement was made that the Open Power Foundation is moving uh, under the Linux Foundation. And that process uh, is actually completed. We're actually part of the Linux Foundation now. Uh, And the whole point of that was to uh, have synergies uh, between the the open source community, which Linux Foundation is driving and a main main driver of. And uh, so we can actually take advantage of all the great open source projects already under the Linux Foundation uh, uh, umbrella and we can uh, potentially collaborate with them and get them involved in mostly importing software and supporting the power architecture. Um, and it's going it's going well so far. There's a lot to do, but uh, uh, they've been very uh, helpful for us and um, looking forward to working with the Linux Foundation in the future.
1: I've always said, James, that I think Competition uh, is what leads to high-quality software and hardware, and you guys are certainly doing that from the standpoint uh, of offering some competition to, to, to other processing architectures. H- have you done anything or have you seen anything in the Linux Foundation or has the Linux Foundation seen anything in Open Power where they said, wow, that is just a much smoother fit for this thing um, than with the alternative that we were using? Have you found Open Power fits really well in one place or another with the Linux Foundation?
2: Uh, well, the Linux Foundation—they, I mean—they have such a wide uh, breadth of software that they 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 help manage. Uh, so, and and this is actually to Power's credit—it can be applied anywhere. I think historically, though, Open Power has been in the uh, HPC uh, high-end market, and uh, one of the things that we're actually pivoting and, and expanding to is uh, new silicon design, right? So we're trying to. Um, get other players to build chips out of power architecture. And the Linux Foundation is great in this because we can actually start talking with all these different projects and to get those use cases and to kind of create that short feedback loop to see exactly where power fits and uh, to be able to customize the architecture to your needs. And that's the benefit of having an open ISO like OpenPower. So it's still in the bread and butter uh, for open power is in the uh, HPC markets, the high enterprise type markets, um, big data, uh, AI, analytics. Um, that's where you need just massive um, uh, throughput, and power is excellent at that. Um, uh, and and so we get a lot of people coming from um, uh, academic uh, world, and we get a lot of people coming from uh, the enterprise and, and who are looking – Towards big data and, and big data lakes and analytics, um, so that's right now. That's where we're at. Uh, but uh, in the future, I think we're going to uh, expand that um, and and try to go after you know cloud native, um, you know, working with CNCF and and other uh, LF projects that uh, utilize power in a different way uh, and take the advantages that power has. Uh, well they they released the open power uh, ISA last uh, August uh, at the summit and so that was the big release which was a uh, fully open sourcing the ISA for power architecture um, and this means that it's royalty free but the benefit actually of the open power and the power ISA that they open sourced is that you actually get patent protection uh, across it so it's very key um, because uh, you know, you can you can get yourself into into trouble sometimes if you don't know exactly what you're doing and, and you just start hacking away. Uh but the benefit is that you get all these uh wonderful things that IBM has developed over the years uh already pa- uh protected for you. Uh so the ISAs uh is really it's about um, you know, customization, right? So you can take the ISA and you can you can actually as long as you're compliant with the ISA spec. Uh, then you get patent protection, but you can actually add extensions towards your use case, and this is, will help in innovation, you know, going from HPC all the way down to IoT.
1: Do you see this affecting the cost at all as more chip manufacturers come on board and say, yeah, we would totally produce an open power chip? Um, with, you know with open specifications, is there a time where maybe the the, the price starts to drop and it becomes more uh, more obtainable for, for people that maybe aren't in the in the higher end but want to play with it or you know, maybe want to get into some of that higher end computing but need to do some rudimentary testing before they can get funding?
2: Yeah, so that's I think that's the part of the goal here is uh, to expand to different uh, markets and different segments, and that means that uh, different price points uh, for silicon, right? Um, so the more people that are making it and the more people that are uh, chasing different segments and different um, use cases, I think uh, you'll start to see uh, different price points for silicon and uh, different kinds of uses uh, for power. Uh, so it's all, it's all, you know, part of the open source, uh, aspect of, of driving, uh, innovation.
1: James has, uh, obviously one of the other things that has changed in the landscape is of course, IBM's purchase of, of, of Red Hat has IBM's relationship with Red Hat, their ownership of Red Hat. Has that any, had any effect positive or negative, uh, for open power? Um,
2: uh, it's, I think it's a little early to tell. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm a former Red Hatter, so I believe in Red Hat, and I believe in their mission in, in open source software. Um, they're an excellent, uh, I think, fit for IBM, and and vice versa, actually. Uh, so there's a lot of learnings and synergies. I think that they're gonna uh, in the um, you know in the early uh, you know short six to twelve months, as well as beyond that. I think there's gonna be. Uh, a learning curve for them and how they actually work together and and jive but uh it 's all going to be good for the open power Foundation because uh most enterprises fortune five hundreds are already using uh red Hat software um and uh that's just can only mean that we can have a good conversation and feedback loop and figuring out how we can best serve those customers with the power architecture.
1: James, what uh, if I can ask, what drew you to, to Open Power? Coming from Red Hat, obviously you, you have a, a belief and a, and a desire to, to help and promote open source, um, and you undoubtedly probably experienced that and, and, and practiced that at Red Hat. What, what was it that drew you to the Open Power Foundation?
2: Uh, well i think it's it's so i i 've started my career in hardware and then uh, moved into kind of cloud and, and software and open source software in particular and uh, what drew me to the power open power foundation in, in particular was uh, its emphasis on innovation and openness uh, and diversity of silicon I think that the um, the best ideas uh, should win out and there should be a collaborative nature in, in how that gets done. Um, and nothing I think can beat the power of open source. Um, the open power foundation, the power architecture in general is just an excellent architecture. And, uh, I think it should be in more places. And I think that there's a, a path forward for doing that. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and help it grow and, and, uh, set it on its, its new direction.
1: Let me ask you this. Let's talk a little bit about Summit. So th- you guys have a conference coming up, and I guess I'll start with the obvious question. Is it an in-person conference or is it virtual this year?
2: It is virtual this year.
1: So the, the, the downside is uh, nobody gets to come and shake your hand and meet you in person. The upside, though, is that maybe this opens the conference up to people that might not ordinarily be able to attend. Talk a little bit about Summit, what it is, um, who might be interested in that conference, and what attendance looks like.
2: Sure. Uh, so it's uh, September 15th, it's a virtual conference. Um, and uh, the kind of topics that we want to hit on is anything around open source hardware, silicon uh, systems, uh, this can be accelerators, this can be um, yeah, uh, like big data and, and analytics and all the way through IoT. It's really what you want to be doing in the, in the open source hardware space uh, and then you can layer on uh, you know the different software that you might be utilizing uh, with open source uh, hardware uh, the tooling that you might be using so talk about uh, the trials and tribulations of of doing open source hardware um, so it's it's really a, a wonderful place for if you have interest in in open source hardware and uh, the latest and greatest in terms of technology and what's happening around it
1: James, uh, let me ask you this: Is there any place that uh, that either sells or, or resells uh, any used open power equipment? Is there anybody is there anybody out there that's taking things that have that have been purchased and and used for a particular purpose or tested, um, and then maybe sold at a cheaper price? Is, is there a market for any for that kind of stuff anywhere?
2: Uh, I would have to actually have to check. I, I don't think there's an actual. Dedicated market towards that, but I know that there's definitely vendors who who have uh, refurbished systems and okay. are, are selling it. Um, yeah, we I mean we have a number of members who have lots of systems and they develop systems, so uh, they do have. Sometimes they are selling uh, refurbished systems at a lower cost.
1: Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll keep, uh, I'll keep my eyes out for that. It's uh, it's, it's one of those things. Every time I go to a conference, James, and I sit down and put my hands on this stuff and play with it. And I'm like, man, this is just crazy snappy fast. Um, but of course, because it's premium hardware, it carries a premium price. And so um, it, at least at the moment, I've not found one that that's at a cost point that I can just set up in my basement and play with it. Um, but hopefully uh, we'll get there at some point.
2: Well there is a, a member called Raptor uh, engineering that mm-hmm. does produce uh the Blackbird which is a single socket workstation uh, level uh, board, um, and that's more at a price point that is uh, palatable towards people who are looking to set up their own home system.
1: So James, any, before I let you go, is there anything else that's coming up in the Open Power Foundation, any particular goals that you guys are skating to, anything that you're excited about?
2: Uh, well, I think what I'm really excited about is this expansion of of scope in terms of what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, we want people who are interested in designing new chips and designing silicon. We're actively working and talking with uh, new partners around this. Uh, and so I think 2020 uh, is a is a crazy year so far in terms of just <laughs> globally, but uh, we're really excited about what we're trying to lay as a foundation to move forward and to uh, really drive the power architecture into a whole different kinds of segments and, and different use cases.
1: His name is James... Kalina. He is a guest on the Ask Noah Show and the new director of the Open Power Foundation. James, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. We hope to get you back on the program real soon. Thank you so much. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855 The email live at com. That's how you can add your voice to the conversation, become a part of the program. Um, Eric did just that. He writes in and says, On episode 192, the caller Kenny asked about backing up a Windows system to a FreeNAS client with encryption and a dashboard. Well, he mentioned the answer in his question that I use, and that is Duplicity. Duplicity runs on Windows and can be set to run as a startup or as a Windows service. All encryption is done locally, and then it can be sent over SSH. And as a web dashboard, although I don't think I would expose that over to the internet, rather, I set it to email me each time a backup completes. So, for me, as I create a non-privileged user for my mother and a friend on a box that has SSH access at my house via a free DNS from NoIP, Duplicate does daily backups to the SSH host for my mother's backup and it emails me a report with completion with a summary of how much data has changed, how long it took, and a success warning or failed notification. In turn, I've run a Raspberry Pi running at my friend's house that I run Duplicate up to backup to. For my Linux machine, I just run duplicity as a script using Cron, so there's no services running, only the application with the actual backup is taking place. Again, I configured duplicity to Emoe, a summary of the report upon completion. I've been doing encrypted off-site backups for free for many years using duplicity, and I have a duplicity hard drive. I have dedicated hard drives for each person that back up to me, so in the event of an emergency restoration, I can pull the hard drive, mail it to them, or simply drive it over. Hope this helps, Kenny. If it hasn't already found another solution, Griffin. Now, another... Uh, another uh, emailer wrote in and said for the caller who wanted to back up to a windows PC to an offsite free NAS. This is my recommendation, uh, for, for, uh, for windows software. Uh, it has encryption and a UI that many users can look at as well as many features. The only other, uh, The only other thing would be to install a free NAS box on-site and to use the software that he's using is NTI Corp. It's called the NTI Backup Now Pro. It uses ZFS Send to replicate the backup to off-site locations, and you can also schedule over SSH. Excuse me, that was from Erica. Uh, David G., Uh, wrote in and said, was listening to the Ask Noah Show episode 182 and wanted to recommend Cryptomator for encrypted backup solutions. It's designed to store the files in a vault, much like Veracrypt. However, the encrypted files are stored individually, so only changed files need to be synced rather than the entire vault. I've personally used this for years. I have a large 24 gigabyte free Dropbox account from when they first launched that I'm not willing to part with because, hey, free storage, but I also don't trust them to hold my personal data. I currently use Cryptomator on both my work laptop, Windows 10, and my home desktop, Ubuntu, both have been able to access the same vault without any issues thanks david g um another question came in the, the question was, how do I connect to the Ask Noah Linux Delta room? So the, the emailer says that he installed Element to Riot IM client, managed to restore his old Riot account. Are your server details at riot.linuxdelta.com room slash Noah's booth? If so, I can't find the tab option function to enter the server host name. Matrix seems to lack the simplicity and functionality of old traditional client server programs such as FTP, IRC, etc. So um, the way that works at, with Matrix is this. You'll go to riot.linuxdelta.com if you don't have a local Matrix client. Now, if you're willing to install Element on your computer, you can skip that step. You can simply just install Element um, and open it up. When you first open Element, it's going to offer you the option of create an account or sign in. By default, it's going to default to matrix.org. This is the community-run server run by the Matrix folks themselves. However, uh, per them and per a lot of people that are using it, it, it... It it is very congested, and so if you want the best experience, they suggest you set up your own home server or a separate home server. Now, we've done that at Linux Delta. Linux Delta is our community branch and where we're trying to build community infrastructure to bring everybody together. You can go to riot.linuxdelta.com and sign up for an account right there on the web interface or, again, if you have element installed, you can choose instead of matrix.org, you can instead enter matrix.linuxdelta.org. That is the matrix server and you can create an account on Linux Delta. Now, once you have an account uh, and you've signed in. The very first thing that will happen is it should ask you if you'd like to look at a list of published room directories. And there are three. There is the Ham Shack where people talk about ham radio. There is the Geek Lab, which is the same room that is on Telegram. If you've joined us at telegram.asknoahshow.com, this is the same place. Uh, now there is a third one and it's called Noah's booth. This was spun up over Southeast Linux fest. And the idea was just to have a place to hang out. Um, I make no guarantees about Noah's booth, what it is, who's going to be there, what's going to happen. It's just there for playing with. Um, but if you want to get connected to the community, we invite you to do that again, matrix.linuxdelta.com. If you're looking for the server again, we are working on getting a step-by-step how-to tutorial with screen caps, um, to try to help people with this because you're right. It's not as simple. Um, I, I submit to you, though, that what makes it a little different, and there's another feedback that I don't think we're going to have time to get to before our bottom of the hour music kicks in, is what uh, was it was another uh, gen- gentleman that wrote into the program and basically said, uh, I've been using XMPP. Why is it that there is so much hubbub about Matrix and why is everybody kind of moving away from XMPP or why is that not being talked about more? And um, the answer is fairly simple. Um, With XMPP, in order to get the same kind of encryption functionality that Matrix has right out of the box, it requires a certain amount of configuration and setup. Matrix is really designed... um, from the ground up to be a secure, decentralized communications infrastructure. And that appeals to us at, at the Asnoa show as well as at AltaSpeed Technologies because this is the kind of thing that we're looking to promote. Um, when you sign up, if you just signed up for Matrix.org and signed in, you would have access to encrypted chats. You'd still be able to chat with us at LinuxDelta.com because... Um, Noah's booth and the Ask Noah show are both published to the matrix.org directory. And so it doesn't matter where your home server is. You still have the opportunity to communicate with anybody else in the matrix infrastructure. And coming very soon, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Matrix is going to roll out a element client that has the Synapse server built in. Synapse is the backend server that connects to ma- the the, uh, the matrix infrastructure. Element is the client that connects to your Synapse server. Um, They're going to bundle both of those into a single app that you'll install on your phone. Why that's powerful, why that's important to mention um, is because it allows a person who has no previous technical experience to simply go into their app store, download the latest application. It fires up and asks them a question, hey, do you have a home server? i don't know what a home server is i guess i don't have that click no all of a sudden no problem it spin up spins up synapse right on your phone and you have the ability to start messaging matrix users because it's decentralized there is no one place to go take matrix offline you can't go to any one organization any one person any one server and pull it offline it just takes that node offline everybody else is still up and running and i, I want to make clear we have every intention of continuing to support and continuing to grow uh, the matrix infrastructure and continuing to support uh, being a place for people to come with no hassle setup. If you want to get started, we want to enable you to do that at Linux Delta, and so as people people have asked, they've said, you know, is it okay if I send files? Is it okay if I is it okay if I create more than one account? Is it okay if I use it for my my small business, or is it okay if I use it for my little lug? We don't care. Whatever you want to do with it, it's the 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 matrix is open and available to you because it was designed to be decentralized. We don't want to take any of anything away from that. Uh, we just want to host it and pay for a. a or a place that it can be hosted um, where you're going to have excellent performance. You're going to have some support. The upgrades are going to be handled for you, and um, you're going to have a good experience. So if we run out of space, if we run out of bandwidth, if we run out of whatever it is, we will simply just make those upgrades in our data center. To provide you with the best experience, hey, the music means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us this week. If you'd like to catch more, we invite you to go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That is the podcast site. Not only can you get reruns of the show, we publish all of the articles and references that we use during the show to that site. So if you hear about a given pick or a given product, or you hear about a given story and want to read more for yourself, you can do that at podcast.asknoahshow. To stay up with the latest, follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow. We'll be back next Tuesday at six PM Central.